Welcome to the latest episode of the Informing Choices Minipod. Placemaking is a malleable term open to interpretation. Whether it's physical design characteristics, land values, job creation, environmental sustainability, biodiversity, new amenities, or simply a sense of well-being, people assign different values to areas. In addition, it seems that COVID-19 has triggered an increased appetite for connection, a sense of belonging, and a sense of community between neighbours. Beyond just surviving the pandemic, the benefits of community are clear. Social connection can help you live a longer, happier life. To discuss the future of place, I'm delighted to welcome innovator, entrepreneur and business change specialist, Toby Rhodes to the podcast. Toby, tell us a little bit about your focus and your business. Hi there, Steve. Uh, yeah, so our focus, so I, I work for a company called Perform Green uh, and we are all focused around developing a greener and a smarter society. So what that means really is how can we all live and work and run our society in a way that is more respectful of resources and general sustainability in all its guises. It could be economic sustainability, environmental sustainability, and also even well-being sustainability. And underpinning a lot of that, uh, and where we have a particular area of specialism and expertise is around digital connectivity and everything that comes under the banner of smart society. Yeah. So that's how connectivity, data, and digital can help us transform our lives, our work, the environment again, and you know, society in general. It never ceases to amaze me over the last couple of years, just the, the prominence, I suppose, of um, sustainability, but a broadening perspective. And, and I'm always drawn back to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which I suppose is something we, we may pick up through this. But the way you described the breadth of sustainability immediately, the, um, the SDGs popped into my head. Funnily enough, we've actually modelled our business around <laughs> the Sustainable Development Goals and our, our whole environmental and business strategy kind of makes reference to those. So it's something that uh, runs very dear through our business and, and kind of how, how we like to conduct ourselves. Well, that's a really nice segue, actually, into, into the first question that, that I have for you. So given the focus on environmental sustainability, climate change um, and the impact of the built infrastructure, what role do you think carbon emissions reduction will play in the future of place? Well, it, it covers huge number of areas, but uh, kind of just to introduce some of them, changes to housing and buildings more generally, uh, and in particular about the way we use energy and power those buildings uh and how we control and optimize the use of those buildings mm. uh, and that's going to be very digitally controlled but also things like house building techniques which are already shifting towards the likes of off-site construction and even today i've read in the newspaper about the first commercially viable or commercially used house that's been digitally printed so 3d printed housing uh, where they're talking about being able to build houses within a week uh, from scratch. So uh, massive shifts there, which will all be reducing the amount of carbon in both the built environment and the way we operate 
our housing or housing and buildings. There'll certainly be changes to transport. We're seeing that already with the move to electric. And in, you know, there's a lot of research going into hydrogen as hydrogen fuel cells as a way of powering transport. Also, that within transport, there's going to be a shift more towards connected autonomous transport. And I believe there's going to be the beginnings of a shift away from the 100 plus year dominance of private car ownership. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I read a little while ago that, um, and, I mean, this is global, but a global peak car ownership is scheduled to somewhere between 2030, 2035. I mean, that kind of chimes with, with my thinking as viable alternative ways that are as convenient as having your own mm. car come into play. And once the economics of that also start to stack up, where it's not only is it as convenient, but it's cheaper and you know more cost effective not to own a car than to own a car. There will be a trickle at first, but then people are going to start to say, well, why do I own a car? You know, and all the, the hassle and cost that comes with that. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that takes us really into kind of mass transit and, and, and active transport. So how do you see those both mass transit and active transport evolving to support the choice that people make about place? Well, uh, we're beginning to see shifts, really. There's been discouragement from using buses and trains. So move very much particularly towards cycling and walking uh, in particular. Uh, at present, the reality of that is patchy. Uh, and in some places, I think that's being fiercely resisted by car drivers. You know, for example, some of the low traffic neighbourhoods, particularly yeah. in London, but elsewhere as well. The other thing connected with that is that a lot of places have got some really good rhetoric coming from both national and local politicians and policy makers but that doesn't always get matched by on the ground reality you know for example many places are declaring climate emergencies the uk as a whole has declared a climate emergency and yet continues on the other hand to promote more ever more road building road widening prioritise car access to towns and cities over non-car based access and so on. So I think there's going to be a shift gradually as people start to hold those policymakers and politicians to account, particularly in the bigger cities where air quality remains a, a really big issue and, and actually reducing the number of vehicles. And that, that would even include uh, electric power vehicles in big cities because electric don't forget that even electric powered vehicles that have zero carbon emissions are not zero emission. The emissions from tyres and brakes are in fact higher than on electric vehicles than they are from uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. I mean, that, that's really interesting then, isn't it? The, the story of emissions, which, which tends to focus on exhaust fumes, that there needs to be something that mitigates against those emissions from basically just from moving about. In uh, automated vehicles. Yeah. yeah, and funnily enough, we do some work potentially with Coventry University looking at the non-exhaust emissions from uh, electric vehicles and looking at ways that that can be uh, limited. And also, the other thing is behavioural, because at the moment there is still re there are really good reasons to shift from internal combustion engine to electric. I think 
once we've got over the COVID pandemic, there'll also be renewed interest and activity in promoting buses, trams, local light rail, intercity rail. It, that has to be the way forward. And if, if you look at what's happening with the constant, you know, we're miles behind in the UK on some of those things. And over time, you know, who knows, there may even be a shift in the UK financing policy and, and taxation policy away from favouring cars towards mass rapid transport. So I think some of those sorts of things are going to come along. Do, do you kind of foresee a, a bigger role for government in the future, not only in disincentivising one part of the market and, and re-incentivising another through taxation, but also through the funding and almost the renationalisation of mass transit? We're beginning to see the start of that already. Uh, Manchester, in the last month, I think, is effectively renationalising the bus services and bringing them into more into line with the way London buses work, which have never been privatised and, strangely enough, provide the very best bus service in the country. <laughs> yes. And everywhere else, bus services have been denuded and, and starved of uh, investment. So possibly, yes, I think it'll take a while. People of my children's generation, they're in their early 20s, are starting to have very different attitudes towards transport and travel than maybe you or I may have done at that age, Steve. So uh, I think there's, you know, there are changes and, and government, both locally and nationally, can have a significant impact on this. Whether they feel bold enough to do that is a, is a slightly different matter. The, the other thing I wanted to mention was, you know, things like there's likely to be still a significant growth in transport as a service. So that idea of I don't have I don't own a car, but I have access to a car. And I kind of mentioned that earlier on. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, when particularly when you get to autonomous, on-demand, low-carbon transport, effectively self-driving taxis, self-driving minibuses, self-driving buses, and so on. Once they've been shown to be safer and can be shown to be cheaper than owning a car, again, you're going to start to move in that direction, and and that's an area where again, governments may have a uh, a role to play, both locally and nationally, around the restriction or even in some places prohibition of private car usage. Look at what's happening in Paris right now, uh, yeah. in some areas of central Paris. And uh, also the changes in taxation, road, you know, road user taxation policies, which are now, you know, already being talked about in policy terms, probably toward late latter part of this decade, where we're likely to move away from the, the old you know, road road tax, which is based on the size of your vehicle and the emissions, to a paper mile or paper journey type approach of taxation. I think mass commuting is likely to reduce, but not necessarily disappear, and that kind of is yeah. going to go hand in hand. We we have seen rapid changes during the COVID pandemic to work practices. Many many people working from home who never dreamt that was feasible before. Quite a lot of those aren't going to go back to commuting. Into, particularly into big cities where you know that daily grind and i also think there's going to be a potential reduction in flying in the short and medium term at least and i think that will be combined with an increased cost of flying mm. both to reduce carbon in the shorter term until genuine low carbon flight becomes is your sense that the existing trend of urbanization 
could be significantly impacted by changes in working practices, potentially even reversing the trend of urbanisation? Yeah, I don't know if it will necessarily reverse the trend of urbanisation. It may, as I said, I think it'll be less people working in urban centres yeah. per se. I don't think that will undo urbanisation as it as it currently sits. But in, in urban areas, there's going to be, I think there'll be fewer mass office blocks, mm -hmm. for example. Already we're seeing large corporations closing main offices because they're just not going to be used in the way that they were ever used before and, yeah. and it's been deemed that they're not going to be needed so then the question is well, what happens to those buildings some of which can be you know repurposed others of which probably are going to be torn down and, and something else put in their place so i think that that's going to happen but people still you know there's still going to be requirements for people to work collaboratively mm. you know within both big and small businesses and and within the public sector and and there's a human need to, to have face-to-face -face contact. Yes. Uh, so, you know, we, we've we all found, I think one of the interesting things over the last year is is the rise of loneliness uh, and, and challenge, you know, mental health challenges at work and, and also fatigue from, you know, endless Zoom and calls. <laughs> and, yes, and the like. sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> such as this, for example. <laughs> no, I don't mean it like that. No. Uh, but, uh, it you know, th there are, co-working spaces and shared workspaces or work hubs i think more and more of those are going to pop up and and those could be in rural centers on the fringes of urban and this might get closer to your question that you know i might still go somewhere to work some of the time but i might not go right into an urban center i might go out to the fringes or there might be one that's in walking distance to my home even yeah. better <laughs> so uh, and and that once you start to get into con connectivity and universal connectivity, a lot of people, not everybody, can work from anywhere if you've got good enough connectivity. Clearly, if you're in a, a job that, that is a service provision job or a, a, a manufacturing or fulfillment job, that needs to happen at a place. But uh, for, for many, many jobs, they can be done from anywhere. And certainly the likes of you and I, Steve, over the last year, you know, we've been we've been sat at home doing our jobs. Yeah. Uh, and, and, we, you know, kind of continue to do that. I mean, I, I, originally I was going to I was going to position this as kind of new builds. Um, but I suppose really I'm talking about new builds, but also repurposing and refurbishing. So what you know, what are the provisions that we might see for digital and energy connectivity, because I suppose if we look far further forward into the future, then it's not just about digital connectivity, is it? It's also about energy connectivity, perhaps um, uh, small localized um, energy grids and so on. So what are the kind of provisions you might expect to see in, in buildings, in property in the future? Well, in, in property, if I just, uh, you know, largely housing, but not just housing, you know, offices, manufacturing sites, shops, uh, and, and other kinds of uh, buildings, uh, industrial buildings, uh, on how we heat and power our sites. That, you know, the, the UK government's just brought forward, you know, its, its target, and it is ambitious to be down to 80% reduction against 1990 carbon targets by uh, 2035. And the biggest, you know, one of the biggest impacts on that is burning natural gas uh, mm -hmm. for energy. The UK housing stock is notoriously 
sorry, just stick with existing housing stock, is notoriously energy inefficient. And, and there are huge upgrade challenges to that, both in terms of taking out gas, boil, gas fired boilers and also absolutely uh, looking at the energy thermal efficiency of those buildings. Not least because nearly all the alternatives to gas central heating or gas fired central heating costs more for the, per unit of heat than, than gas does. Gas is a very energy efficient way of heating our houses, even if it's also a high carbon way. Yeah. So in order for that to be affordable by householders, by businesses, actually, we've got to need to use less energy. And the only way we can do that is having more thermally efficient buildings. Yeah. So, so there's a massive upgrade challenge uh, to existing building stock. And moving to new builds, we already know that from 2025, there are no new gas boilers can be put into houses. Amazingly, builders are still putting gas boilers in right now as we speak, where are we, 2021? And when challenged on some of this, the you get the answer, you know, why are you putting the new gas boilers in your houses? And the answer is because we can. So it's, it's cheaper as a unit cost to build a house and they know they're not going to bear the upgrade cost. Yep. And it's this kind of rather short, <laughs> woeful short-term economics that we suffer from uh, a lot in this country. Because there's then going to be, a, you know, you've got deferred cost either on the homeowner or, you know, if you I do a lot of work with housing associations and social housing, you know, on that social landlord to take on this future upgrade cost, wow. <laughs> which is slightly dispiriting, I'm afraid. Uh, so there's, you know, building standards are being upgraded. Grad, you know, I think also in 2025 and certainly by 2030, the energy efficiency standards for new builds will be much tougher than they are to, to, in the current time. And gradually moving houses, and some already, you know, there's an interesting commercial provider of houses in Nottinghamshire that's already building commercially viable houses at getting close to what's called passive house standards, which require almost no heating or cooling <laughs> digital connectivity and digital control in those buildings so for our houses to be super efficient and also you know when we do get onto things like local energy grids where we're sharing energy let's say in a local street where you might have a sunny side of the street or a shady side of the street we might be able to trade electricity off our solar panels from one side to the other all of that needs to have brilliant connectivity in order to enable the millisecond by millisecond control that allows us to actually trade you know for me to share my electricity with you for example yeah. or, or to, to sell you my my you know surplus electricity uh, the other thing is that's going to happen is that houses were going to come with digital connected connectivity built in from the ground up and certainly once we you know move to off-site construction of, of many houses which effectively houses built in a in an assembly line in a factory and then constructed on site, those will have connectivity built in with all with Ethernet rings, wireless sensors, digital controllers built in absolutely at the start. And actually, what that will go hand in hand with the very high thermal efficiency, so that you know these will be very very well insulated houses. Uh, you know, just one last thing on on housing is you know that that move towards different ways of constructing, and, and I think I mentioned up at the start, you know just seen in, in today's newspapers about uh, 
a, a digitally printed house uh, in the Netherlands. So whole different ways of, of building standards and building construction methods are coming along. And they're, you know, they're very close to being here and now. Uh, this isn't high in the sky, way in the future. Yeah. I mean, un under normal circumstances, I'd probably say, well, that's, uh, that's really great. We've been, we've been speaking for 20 minutes, but there's one issue that um, I, I would like to, to make sure we build in. And this is this idea of how place and how we live, where we live, and how we think about place in the future, and how that offers a much more an opportunity for us to create a much more human-centric urban centre rather than what we seem to have today, which is much more functionally centric. Yeah, I think, you know, we've, we've seen, and it's been accelerated during the pandemic, is that uh, the demise of much physical retail space in urban centres, you know, some of the really big chains. So that, but that also provides, if you like, a once-in-a-generation uh, or multi-generation opportunity to reshape our towns and cities. Mm. So more and more places are, are now creating master plans that include things like more residential in their urban centres, more green space uh, and open space, fewer, and in some cases even no private vehicles, fewer office blocks, as I mentioned earlier on, things like priority for walking and cycling and, and you know, what, active travel and in particular in urban areas that have suffered from air quality problems where all vehicles are, are contributing to those air quality problems not just uh, internal combustion engine vehicles and I think the purpose of urban centres will be much more about providing experiences as well as some places to live there'll be places to meet to eat to enjoy company to share and also to learn learning is going to you know you know, so universities and schools will, you know, need to be where people are <laughs> so that, you know, that integration of learning and living and, and ultimately lifelong learning, because uh, lifelong learning is going to play even more of a role in our future. I think that's a lovely way to end where um, we've kind of almost gone full circle there. You know, we, we started talking about the breadth of sustainability at the beginning and you were very clear about the social implications of the social focus that, that you have from a, from a business perspective. Uh, then we spoke about lots of the kind of technological uh, type drivers of some of this change and we've ended um, back at the social, which I think is, uh, is really encouraging for, for the future. Toby, tell us, how can people contact you, learn more about you and your business? Uh, probably the best way to get in touch is via our website. There's my contact details are on there, but also more information about the company. It's performgreen, all one word, no gaps, .co.uk. Toby, thank you so much for your time. That's been absolutely fascinating. And thank you everyone for listening. 